Good morning, church. Good early morning. I'm always grateful for this early morning crowd at the cha time change. You are true friends. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis, Revelation chapter 22. Yeah, we're starting over. Revelation 22. Be looking at the first five verses as we look at these final brushstrokes that John is giving to this kingdom of God, which is coming and is yet to come in its full consummation. Here in these final pages of the book of Revelation, the, the scene is especially beautiful and assuring. We've studied what is coming. We have basked in that reliability, security, beauty, peace, justice, healing, unity and diversity, the righting of all wrongs. It's a worldview. It is a theology. It is the truth that John has been writing to us about, and it is a worldview that has been transformative through the centuries. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, those who have pondered the worldview, the view of the kingdom that is coming and, and uh, will come for finally, those who have pondered that have done the greatest things in history, greatest things that have benefited mankind and the earth now. By looking at what is coming in finality, it has made a difference in their lives now. What kind of worldview is that? What is it about that worldview? What are the truths of it? John goes back and reviews them with us and gives us vivid imagery that should not only make a difference for the hope that we have for the distant future, it should be such a hope a powerful, defiant hope, even in the present, that it changes the way we live this very day. Let's read about it, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 22. <clears throat> the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will not need light, the light of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> Several months ago, I lost another friend to COVID. I've lost several. This one was a very important mentor in my life. He 
came from humble origins and rose to be a leader of one of the major investment firms in the country. He was also a faithful Christian, faithful in his local church and to his denomination, and had a gift of mentoring younger leaders. We were, he was on many very important boards, but he was also on a couple of boards I was on. And he was an encouragement to me. He took me under his wing, and he, he taught me a lot about leadership, and I learned a lot, especially about leadership that is focused on the hope of the kingdom. What he loved to do was to come alongside a leader he was convinced was chosen by the Holy Spirit for that institution or that church or whatever the organization, and he would come to that leader and he would say, uh, what, what do you think should be? What, what do you think should be at this institution? Where should we be going? And inevitably, uh, the leader would say, well, uh, this is what I had as a vision, and this is what I would hope for us to be someday, but here are all the obstacles, and so we can only pray for it. Or we can only, as Christians love to say, hope it occurs organically, which means we really don't believe it's going to happen, and we're not going to give much effort to it. And he would say, well, someday will never come if you don't start today. Someday, we'll never get to someday unless we, we, and it was always we, unless we start working on it today. So what is it that you envision? What is it that the Holy Spirit is leading you to for this institution that's supposed to be, that should be someday, then today, let's start working on it. I've been in some of those amazing conversations where we were standing on a piece of property and the leader said, I envision that there are several institutions, national institutions that are to come to this place and we're going to do this work for the kingdom of God. And, and, uh, he's, but, but it'll be someday. What, what, what's going to happen someday? Well, we'll get the track of land next to it. Let's start today, he said. Let's start today trying to buy it. Well, they'll never sell it. How do you know? I've never asked them. And they got the piece of property, and then there was this big building in the middle of it, as big as an ICBM bunker. Nobody's going to get rid of that, they said. We've got to build around it. He said, let's tear it down. Just blow it up. Well, we don't know if that's possible. Have you asked? I was in one meeting. It's the craziest one of all. This uh, other leader said, we have someday, we would love to see this part happen on our campus, but we can't, uh, we can't do that because there's a highway that runs through it. He said, let's move the highway. You can't move a highway. Why not? Let's ask the state. Well, what if it doesn't happen? So what if it doesn't happen? We've tried. And then he would say, you preachers, you pastors, you theologians, you're always telling us God can do anything, cause a mountain to fall into the heart of the sea. God is sovereign. There's nothing too hard for Him. But you always come up with these obstacles. We'll never get to someday unless we start today. That's the message of John. Throughout the book of, John, uh, throughout the book of Revelation written by John, John has said this is what the kingdom of God is going to be someday. But he never says, now wait passively and just hope that it happens organically. 
or that it just evolves, he says, as at least this is the way Christians throughout the centuries have interpreted it, we've got to reach into that future and pull as many of those characteristics of the kingdom as we can into the present. And so what if they don't come? We've tried, and the Lord Jesus will say, well done someday, and finish all of the work. This is a presently transformative worldview as presented by the gospel of the kingdom. What is it that we are to be living in? What what is it we're going to be living in someday that today we must by faith pursue? Three big relationships that are described in this passage. They're not new to us. John is ringing the changes on the themes he's already given us, but there are three major metaphors here. One is of a throne, another of a garden, the final is of a lamb. The the, the relationship that is perfected in the kingdom which will come is envisioned by a throne, and that relationship is the perfect relationship the sinless, the God-ordained relationship between justice and mercy, between justice and mercy. The throne is a key theme in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned 35 times. We took a tour of it in chapter 4. We went to the front of it, went to the sides, we looked at the back, we looked from above, we crawled up under the hood of it, and we saw two main things about that throne. Two main characteristics of that throne. As we looked at it uh, in all, from all directions, we saw justice and mercy perfectly, beautifully harmonized in the throne of God in this way. On that throne is seated a sovereign judge and a sovereign redeemer. Not one of each, Redemption and judgment, justice and mercy in one God, three persons. Sovereign judge, a sovereign redeemer. That word sovereign we use a lot. We know it means all-powerful, all-authoritative, as Lucy so eloquently, cleverly explained to us. But that word sovereign in Scripture is always attached to one of God's attributes. That is, He doesn't just demonstrate Himself as a big God, deal with it, but rather here is a big God who has the power and authority to accomplish what He promises. And He promises justice. How does He convey that in the throne? Remember, we see it alluded to in our passage here, but we go back to chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 20. We see it all over the place. We look at that throne, and it is positioned high above all things. There is no authority above the throne of God. Nothing happens without the permission of the throne. It's conveyed by the trumpets the, which, convey, which, which relate to us, the, the presence of the king. Trumpets announce the arrival of the king, but especially arrival of the king to do battle. So here's the throne above all reality, 
trumpets blaring from it saying, I'm not one who sits here passively. I am doing battle. I am waging war to accomplish my kingdom. And on that throne we see alternatively, interchangeably, sometimes it's the references to the Father, sometimes the reference to the Son, sometimes the references to the Holy Spirit, which is it? Yes, it's all three, it's all three persons of the Godhead united in one purpose, accomplishing His holy will. Sovereign judge, the definition of justice, one who is going to bring all justice to bear and every, against every wrong, right every wrong, rectify all uh, imperfections, heal all that is broken at the great day. And on this throne also is seated the sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who together have planned our redemption and have accomplished it sovereignly. On that same throne, at one and the same time, is a sovereign judge and a sovereign redeemer. Look back at chapter 4 and notice just uh, one thing and characteristic, one characteristic of that throne when it says in verse 2, Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, John says, at once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. A rainbow. A rainbow. A throne from which flashes of lightning are coming, reminiscent of the law-giving of the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai is also surrounded by a rainbow reminiscent of that merciful redemption that Noah and his family and the earth met with after the flood. And through it, God said, this is going to be a sacrament, a sacramental sign, a, a, a sign that you, can, that you can see and experience that will remind you that I will never again judge the earth by water. I'm going to preserve the earth until all of redemption is finished. Justice and redemption meet in the throne. Justice and mercy. Only in the throne. And only explained by the gospel. Why has there been such division? Even in the, in the church of Jesus Christ at large over what justice is because our eyes have not been fixed on the gospel. When your eyes are not fixed on the gospel, when you're not grounded in the gospel of Scripture, you fall off on one or the other extreme. You, you're all mercy or you're all justice. Neither of them, neither of those absolutizing efforts is great enough to be characterized as good news. The surprising confounding good news of the gospel is found in a sovereign throne where justice and mercy kiss in the death and resurrection and sacrifice and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The only way we'll stand before that throne and be satisfied that justice has been fully accomplished while we are 
saved sinners is that justice and mercy kiss in the person of Jesus. That rainbow. The rainbow is an upside-down bow. The word describing it in Scripture is not uh, like the little bow you put in your little girl's hair. It's a battle bow. And it was a battle bow that was trained on the earth. It was drawn on the earth in judgment. And God has turned it upside down and pointed it at Himself. That's why we look at the bow and we find mercy because God says, I, as a righteous judge, have found a way to be merciful to you, and that is by taking the judgment that is due to you on myself in the person of Jesus. Justice and mercy. How does it affect you in this present world? How do you, if that's the way it's going to be someday, what can we practice today? How can we pull the benefits of that someday grace into the present? Yes, it will be by pursuing justice with mercy. Here is the truth about what must be done, and we stand for that, and we pursue it on behalf of others, and we also remind all along the way. Let me tell you the good news of those who have sinned against justice, they may find mercy. I'm here to tell you, I'm one who has experienced it. When you are in despair about, is there any justice in this world? When you're in despair about your own experiences and you're tempted to think God has abandoned you, you put your eyes on the throne and all of those questions will ultimately be answered. When you wonder, is God going to, is, is He going to repair what is being broken in our world, world, this injustice that's occurring in Eastern Europe, we don't know when in this life it may be. It may not be in this life, but we know by that throne someday it will be. And even some of the perpetrators of that evil will be saved and will be recipients of mercy at that great day. That's the kind of God we have. And today, when you've received bad news, bad news about your relationship or, relationship or bad news about your health, bad news about your business, and you're tempted to think, God is punishing me, or you're just depressed, you're just worn out from all that we've been through in the last couple of years, and you say, my faith is so weak, I must, I, I've, I've lost my faith, I can't find my way. You also look at that throne, and there you will find your hope. We have a hymn in our, in our collection by George Matheson. Most of you know it very well. Oh, love that wilt not let me go. Matheson was a seminary student when he lost his sight. He, became, he went blind. He was engaged uh, to a woman to be married, and when she, when he went blind, she broke off the engagement. She didn't want to be born, uh, be, be married to a blind man. His sister lived with him to help him in his house after his blindness, uh, but she also got married. And on the night of her wedding, the night after her wedding, he was sitting in the house for the first time alone, 
in total darkness. And he said, a feeling of total sadness came between me and the Lord. And then a hymn came that he rapidly composed. And one of the lines of that hymn is this, O joy, capital J, meaning Jesus, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. He thought on the mercy of that rainbow in the middle of his suffering, and he thought there may, be, there may be a million reasons I'm going through the suffering that I am, but one of them cannot be that God doesn't love me. And one thing cannot be, I don't know what's going to come out of this, but I know that this, this cannot be, it cannot be that this is going to stay forever. God does love me. He's proven it in merging His, His, His justice and His mercy for me in the cross. And God will make all things right. He'll heal my sight. He'll give me the love I so long for. Meditating on that someday truth will make a difference today. Second image we have in this passage, one we've seen <clears throat> Uh, in this book of Revelation and other places is the garden. You know the story of the garden in the, in the Bible. Lucy showed us a picture of it at creation. And there, all things were perfect. God made man and woman in His image. He put them in His garden to till and to uh, subdue it and to, and to uh, unpack its potential. There are trees in the garden. It was a tree of life. They were not supposed to partake of it, but rather uh, trust in God that He knew what was best for them. And that tree, the Puritans used to teach, that, that tree was a kind of sacrament, that it was an outward and observable sign indicating the harmonious relationship between Adam and Eve and their God. And there, that tree flourished and bore fruit. It was beautiful in imitation of the flourishing and fruit-bearing of their lives that was the result of their depending on and trusting God. When they broke His commandment, when they rebelled against Him, they were thrown out of the garden. And the fall was introduced into our into the creation and the, the resistance of the creation, the brokenness of the creation is still that kind of synesthesia, that, uh, that reflection of what is happening at the core, this rebellion of man against God. But here he is saying he's not going to leave it that way, and he's not leaving it that way now. There are three other images in this 
garden that you have to notice that fill out the picture for the significance of this perfect relationship, this perfect relationship between worship and everyday life or between worship and work. You see, in the garden, there was no division. They went about their work worshipfully, and as they worshiped, they were working. And now there's this division, there's this strain, this trial, this difficulty of waking up on Sunday morning and giving just one day of worship to the Lord. There is this daily battle of putting Christ first in our work. That division was not there in the garden. Someday that division is going to be, that dichotomy is going to be erased. That's the Sunday. What do we do today? Well, we focus on this garden concept beginning with the river, the river that flows from the throne of God. It's in our text. And that river we know from the rest of Revelation is the Holy Spirit. The only way that we can live in this world in a worshipful way that pleases the Lord is by the power of the Holy Spirit coming from the throne of God, enabling us to live after the manner of Jesus. And, and in other places of the Bible, in Ezekiel, for instance, that, that river gets, as it flows from the throne, it gets wider and deeper. It makes progress. The Holy Spirit is making progress in our sanctification, and the Holy Spirit is making progress through us in bringing the kingdom to earth so that God's will is done here as it is in heaven. The second thing I want you to think about are the trees, the trees. These, these, the, 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 the river produces trees. The river causes the life of the tree of life in heaven, Jesus Christ, the river causes trees, representatives of the tree of life in heaven to grow up in the earth. What are those trees? Churches. Gatherings of God's people. Trees being planted. There's a reason we talk about church planting Churches planted by the Holy Spirit going out through our world. And then what are those churches supposed to do? They are to bear leaves. See it in the text? Leaves in verse 2, which are the healing, which are for the healing of the nations. Leaves are the individual members. which according to this text are multicolored and various. That's the word nations. You know, we read a word like that. We say healing of the nations. We read about the nations. The nations, that word is repeated throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament to take the gospel to the nations. And we think about what we just did in the World Missions Conference, and that certainly is included but the Jewish believers hearing that word, ethne, they heard it as Gentile. Wait a minute. And, and it, was, it was always, it caused a catch in their souls. It could be offensive. Wait a minute. This is ours. And you're telling it is for the Gentiles too? And they would have to be reminded. And Paul would have to chastise them for not seeking that 
agenda of God. When you understand that language, it, it, it unpacks the, the New Testament. You can't read the Bible the same anymore when you realize that God is not going to be settled with anything less than the unity of the multicolored, multi-ethnic people of his creation into one new people. And local churches are the outposts of that, the foretastes of that. We reach into the future and we pull that into the present and we do it in Jerusalem and we do it in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We do it in Memphis and we do it in the surrounding areas and in the country and throughout the world. And the world looks at us and they say, that, that is something more beautiful than anything we know. A unity of people calling each other brother, sister, father, and mother who are really not supposed to get along with each other. That is the someday of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation gathered before the throne that we have the privilege of pursuing right now. Someday that's what's going to be true. And today we start, we move, we move toward our neighbors, we move toward those across the street around our city And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The third image is of a lamb. Of a lamb. And this, of course, is the most familiar one to you. And it is the perfect relationship between God and sinful people. And he says, in that day, there will be no night. There will be no darkness. Because night is symbolic of sin and night is symbolic of of pockets of evil that are still waging war against the kingdom, there will be no hint of it there. There will be no, no possibility of darkness, the darkness of sin and sinfulness and rebellion arising because the light of Christ will overwhelm it and drive it and has driven it eternally into hell. How do we live in the meantime? According to that light. We don't run from darkness, we take light to darkness. And we take light to darkness with this idea, as a friend of mine says, with the idea of presenting Jesus as more beautiful and more believable than any other message in the world. We take light to darkness. We're not intimidated by it. We take Jesus to darkness And show him to be more beautiful and believable than anything else. We are, according to this text, priests. His name is written on our forehead. We've seen this before as well. And it conveys the security that we have. No one can can triumph over us. No one can ultimately stop this mission that we're on. And it shows our union with Christ in his work right now. We dare to go into those places where we're told we're forbidden because we know we go with the presence of Jesus Christ. And we'll be united in heaven with him in that work. And even sit on thrones of judgment to bring his kingdom to bear on every part of the cosmos. This is defiant hope. It's hard to... It's hard to think about defiant hope. 
It's hard to find a picture of it in today's world, but we're seeing it. We're seeing it in our news broadcasts with Ukrainians who don't seem to understand that they're outnumbered. Power, the power differential is infinitely uh, skewed to the Russian side. But they're defiant in their hope. The supply is coming to them. The military supplies are coming through Poland. And some of you remember when Poland was once dominated by a communist regime as Ukraine is straining to keep out of its country again. One of our elders sent me an article from the early 2000s written by Peggy Noonan about the day, she says, the day that Poland, the the day that communism was defeated in Poland. She said that it it wasn't come, it, it, it wasn't through later, finally, through Reagan or Thatcher or others, but it was, it was earlier than that. Certainly they had a hand in it, but it was earlier than that. It came, she said, by a visit from Pope John Paul the second, the first Polish pope. He had been a pope for eight months, and he uh, decided he wanted to return to his homeland, and he made requests of the communist government that he come back for a visit in June of 79. And uh, the, the government, did the Polish government, the communist government, did not want him to come because they didn't want him to stir up trouble. And yet they were, they were afraid of that. They were afraid that he would, he would, he would stir up rebellion, and, but, uh, he, but that they were also afraid that if they kept him from coming, that uh, they would show that they're afraid. So they let him come thinking that he would be on his best behavior, that he would consider it a privilege, that they would be seen as gracious in letting him come back to his country. He wouldn't say anything too dangerous. And then, just to assure it, they put out this disinformation campaign through their schools. They told their teachers to explain the Pope's visit this way. The Pope is our enemy. Due to his uncommon skills and great sense of humor, he is dangerous because he charms everyone, especially journalists. Besides, he goes for cheap gestures in his relations with the crowd. For instance, puts on a Highlander's hat, shakes all hands, kisses children. It's modeled on American presidential campaigns. Because of the activation of the church in Poland, our activities designed to atheize the youth not only cannot diminish but must intensely develop in this respect. All means are allowed and we cannot afford any sentiments. The Pope arrived June 2, 1979. They thought a few thousand people would come to see him in his trek from the airport to uh, the Victory Square, you, some of you remember those iconic images of the Pope getting off the plane and kneeling down and kissing the tarmac of his home country. It wasn't just thousands who showed up, it was over a million. A million gathered around Victory Square in the old city. The communist officials were in the hotels around looking through the glass at what was happening. His biographer said it was the greatest sermon he ever preached. 
He said in it, the land, this land, why would God raise a pole to the, to, to, to the papacy? It is because, he said, this land is to be a particularly responsible witness to God. Out of its sufferings, they are called to be a witness to the cross and the resurrection. Will you accept those obligations? He asked those gathered, and they started chanting, we want God, we want God, we want God. It was illegal to say that. Didn't they know that? They didn't care. By the time he left in the last day of his visit there, three million people gathered to hear him. We want God. Didn't they know the weapons? Didn't those people know what they could lose? Didn't those people know how, uh, how they lacked power? That worship was to be contained within their churches? That God didn't exist? No, they didn't know that. They had defiant hope. And no regime was powerful enough to stop it. You have that same hope. Nothing should intimidate. Jesus wins. And he is winning now. Let's live today according to what someday will be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the strength confidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Send us forth as a justly merciful, worshipfully working, and reconciled group of your children to accomplish all your holy will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.